It's time for counterculture. Are you tired of how divided we are? Let's find the peacemakers. Think everyone is mean and selfish? Let's talk to those who are helping us all be more loving and caring. Think our culture is going downhill? Let's meet those who are helping us flourish. And now your host, Jonathan Sanborn. And hello again. Welcome to Counterculture. Yes, I am your host, Jonathan Sanborn, calling, uh, sitting here in alone in studio in hot and sweaty Phoenix. Well, actually, it's kind of nice now. It's not quite the uh, the death trap of summer, but uh, enjoying life. Kids are out of school. Got a spring in my step, and I'm excited to have on this show. Uh, I, I, I would call it a longtime friend. So we haven't seen each other in 20 years. Please welcome Anna Broadway. Hello, Anna. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. Oh, Anna, thank you so much for calling in. Anna, uh, so, you know, the show Counterculture is about, really it's about people who are going against maybe the norms of culture and helping us to be more compassionate, helping us to be more uh, at peace with one another, and even to really just the general sense of, the stream goes one way, and they're standing out and being different and helping our as we as I mentioned in the in the in the song at the beginning, uh, the culture to flourish. And I I was just uh, reconnecting with Anna and some things that she's been doing. I'm like Anna needs to be on my sh- on my show. Anna is a writer and editor currently researching the global experience of singleness. She's the author of Sexless in the City, and has written for the New York Times. Which uh, right you just got you were just in the New York Times like this week, right? Yeah, it was in the print edition Wednesday, and it went online a few days before. Wow, that's that's fantastic. That's a big deal in in any kind of like in journalism and writing. That's that's a great milestone. Congratulations! And Thank you. you've also written for the Washington Post, the Atlantic, uh, among many others, and contributed to uh, Christianity Today, uh, Venus and Virtue, uh, the books Venus and Virtue. Well, there's a lot. Faith on the Edge, and she holds an MA in Religious Studies from Arizona State. And she has the honor of she and I were both on a, on a trip together, a medical mission trip to India. And so she was our photographer. And so we had some adventures involving bands of monkey and crazy, and crazy driving together. So that, I think that we bonded over that. Yeah. I seem to recall you trying to balance a pot on your head. <laughs> it might have happened. Yes, I did. I was. Uh, uh, I think there's evidence. There is evidence out there of me in a tribe, a remote tribe in India, and I was schooled by these ladies by their ability to balance multiple pots on their head. So okay, so now you—that's part of my part of my tainted past. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It was a great. It was absolutely a great season. Um, so. Can you tell me about your – oh, first – okay, before we get into that. Now, just so our, our viewers get to know you a little better, maybe say something – we're going to play our game called Fake News. And that's where you say sure. something true and not true about yourself. And we try to guess the, which one's true or which one's fake. Okay. So it's, so you kind of get what the premise is? Yes. Okay, ready. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's go. All right. I worked at a truck driver training school. Truck driver training My school. Favorite- Okay. My favorite cookies are peanut butter. Oh. And I was homeschooled. Okay. 
So I'm going to say your favorite cookies are not peanut butter, and that's the fake news. <laughs> Am I right? Oh, man, you are right. Woohoo! Okay, so you are so encouraging to me. Again, I am like no better than a coin toss when it comes to this these days. <laughs> All my psychology and theology and, and ed- education, and I'm not very good. But you just, I think I somehow I got, I, I think I knew the homeschooling because I've met your parents. And I think I right. knew that part. So, and the other one, I just, I think I, I don't know. It just seems like something you would do. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. It was, it was on the bucket list for a long time. Yeah, that's right. And you, did you, did you truck drive up? To, you're now in Alaska of all places. Where, I am. So yes, why are you I, in Alaska? I, well, I came here toward the very end of my trip. So from 2018 to 2019, I did a 41-country trip to research the global experience of singleness among Christians. Fantastic. And for the last couple months of that, I was visiting different cities in the United States and Canada. And pretty much my last stop before a visit to L.A., which was kind of combo interview visit family, I was in Anchorage. Okay. And unexpectedly realized that after all the places I had been to in the U.S., this was probably the best place for me to build more relationships with Indigenous Americans and Alaska Natives so that I could also have some Indigenous perspectives in my research. Because I really, in the design of this book, wanted to overcome the segregation that often seals off the global church from the American church and the segregation in the American church, where far too often we're talking about the white experience and not including the voices of people who have different ethnicity and therefore often a very different experience of life. So, And you're giving voice and agency to them. I am trying to, yes. Okay, great. It was really my goal to include all of the church. So I also interviewed Catholics and Orthodox Christians, and I p- interviewed people who were single for all reasons, and all throughout life. I think my oldest interviewee was 93 or 94, mm, okay. a never-married woman I interviewed in Mexico City. Mm. And I also made sure to include people who were sexual minorities and people who were disabled, because those are other facets to singleness. And so, you know, I know some Christians might react to that, but it wasn't like I was, I realized very early, I can't choose people based on what I think about their lifestyle, right? because this is a work of journalism, and I need to make sure that I'm including all different types of stories about what's actually happening with people. Right, right. So it's different from a book that's sort of prescriptive, where maybe you want to pick, like, nice stories. But on the other hand, if you've ever actually read the whole Bible, even just Genesis, um, yes, <laughs> that's a pretty candid account of <laughs> Yes. So I don't think we have much place getting up on our high horses and trying to only find the, like, perfect because they live how I think they should. Christians. Right, <laughs> I know. That's not really honest. No, it so. sure isn't. So let's talk about most of our listeners are in America. So what, sure. let's talk about single. Start with uh, singleness in America, because I mean I'm very interested in the global perspective as well. But let's start here. Right, right, right. So what's the reality of singleness in America? Well, I think the most important thing that we often overlook 
is the fact that there's a very significant sex gap ratio. Okay. Most of the time, people talk about singleness like it's your fault, you know, you made the wrong choices, or you didn't try hard enough, or whatever. But the reality is, there are millions more women than men in the church. And unless the church. you manage okay. that, mm-hmm. and, and around the world, too. So in the United States, the church has 25 million more women than men. There, and 20, probably yeah. the re- in the church, you mean there's 25 million more yeah, single, more women in the church than there are men. Interesting. Well, we don't know that all of them are single, okay. but it stands to reason that a number of them are. Right, sure. And I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but the British writer Vicki Walker, in her book Relatable, talks about how the problem is even more significant than that, because she did a pretty large survey, mostly of British Christians, but not entirely, and found that men in the church were much more open to marrying somebody who did not share their faith. Mm -hmm. I think maybe only a third to a fifth of men were insistent on marrying a Christian if they themselves went to church. But the number of people who want a Christian spouse is much higher among women. Like, I think half of the Christian women she surveyed wanted a Christian man. Right. So what that means is you have more single women than men in the church, and then those men are more open than the women to dating people outside the church and possibly marrying so that makes the pool of potential men even smaller for women. And the church just does not acknowledge right. the demographic reality. Yeah, no. If we did, we would have to talk about singleness very differently, because yeah. you can't talk about it anymore as just a stage that you pass through and then get out of. Right. You reach this milestone of maturity called marriage. Yeah, that's right. Because I know the day I... Got married was the day I arrived spiritually. <laughs> right, right, right. No, right. far from it. No, exactly. I, I, yes, and I was single till I was thirty-three, and so for like a decade, I was often felt like second class in the church, and mm, you know, you yeah. got you got to get fixed, right? You need to be fixed in order to get maybe to be whole. And so I would, you know, in my young theology days, I would bust out Paul the Apostle and say, well, you would never hire Paul, right, <laughs> in these, if with that right. standard, right? Or what about Elijah? Elijah, right. I and mean, there's so many that doesn't quite fit the mo- what we think of as the model or even, in, you know, so uh, that is really interesting. So one is just the demographic reality. And then another, I think there is, there are just attitudes like singleness, and that was a question. It's like, right. is what are the big attitudes that really create single make singleness such a big problem in the church? Well, I think one is this tendency to view singles as somehow inferior, as you noted, or even immature mm-hmm. relative to married people. Yeah. But I think the bigger problem is that we are compromising the gospel because we have shifted from this idea that you're supposed to, as a Christian, seek first God's kingdom Mm -hmm. and his righteousness. And all too often, and this is true, I would say, around the world based on my interviews, but all too often we really make the goal more about getting married and having a family. Hmm. And the worst part of that is we then 
end up in this position of thinking that church growth looks primarily like procreation and teaching your kids to become Christians, yeah. when in fact there's almost no precedent of that in the Bible, certainly right. not in Acts. Right. You know, and the irony is, if we remembered that the church grows through evangelism, that's something that single people can participate in just as equally mm-hmm. as married people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really striking how commonly the church gets bound up in this lie about how we grow the church, that it's mainly through children. It lets us off the hook. Yeah, yeah, that's right, rather than... No, that's a great observation, one I I hadn't thought of, and I think it really is something that's telling of maybe some aspects that are unhealthy. And just the other reality, too, is that half isn't... Didn't America pass half of the adults are now unmarried in America? Is that right? Yeah, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at some point in the past few years, we reached a point where the number of single people surpassed the number of married right. people. And so if we think that the to be whole is is married right. with children, and then you have yet half the population is therefore by default, they are not whole, so they need to be right. you know, eventually be made whole. So that there's a problem with that. Yeah. Hmm. And I think there's a problem with the stories that we tell, too, because we're used to the narrative arc that's built into marriage, yeah. you know, where you get married and you try to have kids and then you're raising the kids and you're finding the right school for them and you're getting right. them off to college and then the grandchildren come along, right. <laughs> whatever, right. you know, there's this great narrative that comes built in with marriage. There is not a narrative arc like that right. for singleness. Right. And so I think there's also a huge opportunity for the Church to do much better at teaching a more missional view of vocation. Mm-hmm. Because evangelism does not have to be something that you're doing full-time in a foreign country. Right. And the reality is, for most Christian singles, it's not going to be possible for them to go into full-time ministry. Right. But we all have a role to play in helping to bring God's kingdom And some of the people I interviewed who were the most content in their singleness often had the clearest sense of their purpose in Mm, God's kingdom. mm, You know, mm -hmm. they might be working for a consulting firm. They might run an art nonprofit. One woman was involved in translating the Bible into an indigenous language in Australia. Mm. But all of those people had a sense of purpose in serving God's kingdom that gave them a sense of what their life was about and where they were going, even though they were single. We yeah. all have access to that. We don't hear all those narratives very often. No, we don't. Right. And that's why I, what, uh, that's one reason I just you, your story and what you've been talking about really resonates with me, and I think for hopefully for our audience. And I wanted us to, to, to be talking about if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Counterculture with Jonathan Sanborn. I have on on calling from sunny Alaska, Anna Broadway, and we're talking about both singleness and then what. Also, the next part of this is just a, a fantastic perspective, um, and is the basis of your New York Times article. Could you just tell me a little bit about what your what the article was about? Sure. So in the piece, I talk about how with vaccination and things, we are slowly returning to normal. And that means having to navigate what are the norms of touch now that in some cases, we don't have to think quite so much about social distancing as as we used to. And so in the piece, I talk about the experience of interacting with hundreds of Christians around the world as I was doing my research on singleness. 
And more than once, particularly in Tanzania for some reason, I had a man take my hand, usually because we were crossing the street or I needed help or something. And it was a really jolting experience for me because, of course, in this culture, touch is almost always sexualized, particularly when it's between a man and a woman. Yes. And so, you know, there was this part of me that was like, whoa. But then it kept happening. And by this point, I had also been hearing and observing how different a view of touch other cultures have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in the piece, I talked about the fact that this is an American perspective that we have, and it's not a particularly healthy one. And I didn't have room in the piece to go into the ways that touch plays a role in medicine and can be a significant part of healing. Although Tara Parker Pope just had a piece in the New York Times, I think yesterday, and she talked about a number of benefits of hugging in particular and how it helps you handle conflict better, and it's good for your immune system and right, all of these right. other things. Right. So there's so much good that comes from physical contact with each other, but for whatever reason, we often tend to leave that behind in childhood. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. once we get to adulthood in this country, keep it very perfunctory and businesslike and somehow operate as, as if the healthy, mature thing to do is to not physically demonstrate our affection for people in our lives. And so this idea of platonic touch, because, I mean, I was raised in a very conservative to be environment, and that often sets a lot of social problems <laughs> for a lot of people, including, like, you know, that be very suspicious of, you know, how if you if you have to hug or try to avoid it, Right, um, right, and there's the the you know, the side hug, the the etiquette, all to av- avoid any kind of sexualization of any male female contact. Right, right? that we, I, you, I don't know if you you sure. have that kind of upbringing, but yeah, I would say pretty similar. Pretty similar, right? And so, and I'm, and it's just very commonplace in many parts of culture. But what, how is that unhealthy? I mean, we're, you're sort of alluded to it, but how is that unhealthy? Well, I think it's unhealthy because we end up getting the message that the only place you can get your needs for touch met is in the context of a sexual relationship. Right. And when you learn that that's the only place that you can get it, I think it actually drives us toward sexual contact. Laura Wilbert has written a book called Handle with Care that's a Christian perspective on touch, Mm -hmm. which goes into this much more deeply. And she talks about, in a Christianity Today article from a few years ago, that her book kind of started from reading this John Piper interview, where he talks about meeting with a woman in a hospital who was there because she had attempted suicide. Mm. And when he asked her something about why she was there, she said, I like it when they touch me. Mm. And she had learned that in the hospital was a place that she could get touch. Now, wow. Piper, I've read the interview myself. Piper's very careful to say, this is one person. You cannot extrapolate from this to right. others and assume that this is a pattern. But, you know, I found myself when I was living in the Bay Area in my late 30s going to the chiropractor on a regular basis for the same reason. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where I knew I am seeing the chiropractor so regularly in part because it's one of the most consistent times in the week when somebody touches me. Right, right. And there's a sense of my body being cared for. Right. And I was even living in a former convent at the time with a mix of single people and other families. But 
the only time I really got touch with my housemates was if I picked up one of the children or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we understand that, like you can, I mean, children need to be held, and they're even if and if they go without touch at very early ages, they actually it's there's major problems with that, like psychologically right. and in development. Right. We, we, we understand that, but we somehow think you, you age out of that and there's never any other right. need for it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I talk about in the article is that I've been living with a family here in Anchorage for the past several months. And so when it came time for her to get her first shot of the vaccine, my housemate was really nervous because she doesn't like needles at all and usually gets a nasal flu vaccine or Mm -hmm, flu shot and so mm -hmm. forth. So anyway, I happened to be free and was like, well, would you like me to go with you? And so we held hands while we got our shots. Yeah. And I think that kind of comfort is something we ought to extend to each other much more. There's also a fascinating passage in the book Clean by James Hamblin, where he talks about this organization in Portland that I think is working. I don't remember the exact troubles that the men have had, but they've had some major troubles in their lives. And one of the things this program works on is incorporating more healthy touch with them. Right. So sometimes it's like mirroring activities Maybe it involves some athletic things, but I thought that was a really interesting section. Like, yeah. time and again, lack of touch makes a huge difference yes. for adults. So, so the elephant in the room on all this and is that everyone will have an example in their brain right. of the creep. You know, sure. there was the guy at the gym who wanted to hug me a lot. Right. And there was right. this guy who's the who tends to work his way around to all the pretty ladies and hug them. You know. Sure, so sure. we all, all everyone probably listening to this has someone that they think of who's a creep, right? And they mm-hmm. and then therefore mm-hmm. in order to avoid the creep, what we we create stronger barriers. Is that would that be fair? Well, I can't speak for particular people. Right. And I also have to admit, I wonder what are the needs of that person right. that are not being met, which he or she is trying to meet right. in those instances. Right. But, you know, I think it's really important to distinguish touch in public versus touch in private. Right. And also to distinguish the touch you give to everybody versus the touch you give to people you are very close to. Yeah. Right. You know, like if you have a conversation with a friend and you both find out that you wish there was more touch in your life and you're comfortable holding hands sometimes. Right. That's not something you have to go out and do while you're shopping at the mall. Right. That could be something that happens when the two of you are interacting in a setting where you're comfortable with. Sure. And it's not like you have to be hugging every 500. Sure. No. Right. Right. There's that. Right. So, I think that's something to keep in mind, because as we've probably all learned from this pandemic, a small social circle can do more to meet your needs than maybe we thought before. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you can actually go deeper with people. And and I think the other is our culture, like uh, probably the base of your article is that our culture is so understood now that something has been missing when we're so when we're socially distanced and isolated, that even a hug, right. it, there's more meaning behind a hug now. Like, when, yeah. like there's and maybe that's actually intentional. It's meant to be important and valued. 
So, right. yeah, I, I, I totally can relate to this conversation. And so what's a good way to just a, a, a quick tip and then we're going to just get, kind of let people know how they can follow you a little further. But just a quick tip. How can we communicate affection without attraction? Well, I think you have to communicate. And it's probably a long overdue conversation about consent for us. You know, that conversation is so often confined to sexual touch. Right. But I think one really healthy thing that's coming out of this pandemic is we're talking more about what are you comfortable with? Are you comfortable holding hands? Are you or shaking hands? Are you comfortable standing within a foot of each other? And I'm sure there are introverts and people who've long wanted more space who would say, that's a conversation a long time coming. Right, right. You know, so I think we need to be willing to talk about those things, but also to maybe kind of reconnect with our bodies. You know, like when are the moments when I feel affection for a loved one and I do express that in touch. You know, the children yeah. in the home that I live with will sometimes just come and lean against my leg or brush I, against me I, in passing. See, you know? it's so natural. I love that. Yes. I, yeah. So yes. as we're wrapping up, I lo- this has been a great conversation. How can our listeners like find more about you and stay in touch sure. with, I mean, stay in touch? Yes. So my website is AnnaBroadway.com, A-N-N-A-B-R-O-A-D-W-A-Y.com. And I have some stories from my trips there, also some past articles. And for people who are interested in the book that I'm working on about my singleness research, you can also sign up there to get added to my mailing list and learn about the book when it comes out. Anna, I'm so glad we got to talk. This was great. It's it's been 20 years too long. Thank you for calling in and great interview. Appreciate you. You're welcome. And, And God bless. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening today. Counterculture is made possible by Care Portal, helping local churches help children and families in crisis. Sign up you and your church today at careportal.org. This program was sponsored by Care Portal.